From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Jessica Bennett is gender editor at The New York Times, where she works to expand global coverage of women and gender across platforms. She's the author of the wonderfully useful and funny book, Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. This book was inspired by the sexism that she experienced in her career, especially early on. She had to learn to work with men who were often given an unfair advantage, like getting credit for her ideas. Jessica and I talk about how she formed the original feminist fight club, which they kept secret until they came out. And the support and strength that she found in this group, uh, which inspired her to write the book, Feminist Fight Club. She uses humor, especially wordplay, to indicate to men when they've acted inappropriately, which really opens up the conversation, makes it, makes it more likely to happen, which is, of course, what we need. For example, manterruption occurs when a man speaks over a woman. And appropriated is when a man takes credit for a woman's idea. The intent here is to create real conversation that's infused with, with humanity about the many subtle sexist actions that impede our needed social progress toward an egalitarian world. So now, get set to listen and learn from a leading voice for change in the fraught relationships between men and women. It's Jessica Bennett. Jessica, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks for having me. The thinking behind Feminist Fight Club, the book, is that I actually have been in a real-life feminist fight club for some time. We didn't fight each other, but we fought patriarchy. And for many years, we didn't talk about the club outside of the club because many of us were in male-dominated work environments where we really did feel like we would be penalized if word got out that we were having meetings with a feminist group. But lo and behold, we started to realize that perhaps the time had come to talk about the club and to take some of the lessons we'd learned public. And so that's the backstory to the book. So there really was a fight club. There really was. There still is. We still meet every month. Uh, we talk, We now talk about the existence of the fight club, but the members still remain anonymous. Oh, really? They and do. So, so do you show up in a different disguise or in a different identity, as in Chuck Palahniuk's inspired novel, <laughs> or uh, you know, uh, with your face we're not bloodied? Anonymous to each other. Um, but we're anonymous to the rest of the world. Mm. So, you know, I talk a lot about the experiences of the Fight Club in the mm-hmm. book, but without revealing names or identities. Um, and, you know, maybe sometimes we put on a mask or two. Put on a mask or two? Yeah. Uh, so what's what's the um, 
you're thinking about retaining your um, anonymity as a Fight Club. You know, I think that part of what I hope to do with this book is create these really actionable tools that anybody could use. Mm-hmm. And, and you've done that. As a, I hope so. <laughs> I hope that I have. Um, I know that I've read some of your research in, in my reporting of this book. But, you know, it's nice to have a kind of background narrative to the story, which is the story of this real life group. But we didn't want to mm-hmm. take away from from these lessons by kind of making it focus on individual people. It's really about the collective power of the group. And that's what I'm trying to inspire people to do is Mm -hmm. hopefully create their own fight club Mm -hmm. and through the power of numbers, change some of these issues. We must do this and we are all a part of it. And and some of what I want to ask you about in our time together here is uh, the role that men can play uh, in, you know, Having a dick without being one, I think is how you put it in the uh, in one of the chapters of your book. But first, it is. first, uh, what does it mean to work wife while female? What did you What have you discovered personally, uh, and in the in your fight club, and, and in terms of what you have explored through your research? What's the essence of uh, sort of the manifesto of what you know what you're tra- what you're railing against uh, in working while female? WWF. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so I'm 34, and I came into feminism a little bit later. I had grown up in a really progressive environment in Seattle. My parents were feminists. I was always told I could accomplish whatever I set my mind to, and mm-hmm. throughout most of my schooling, I really felt like I could. Um, you know, much like the statistics show now, I outpaced my male peers in college. And then I entered into the workforce and I realized that I wasn't getting ahead as fast as I was used to. And I didn't initially recognize this as a systemic issue or even as sexism. I just felt like the problem must have been myself. Hmm. Um, You know, my first job was at Newsweek magazine and I was a junior reporter and I would see a lot of the the guys who I had started out with get their name into the magazine more frequently get more bylines occasionally I would pitch a story and have it be turned down only to see it show up in the pages of the magazine with somebody else's name on it who happens to be a male whoa (laughs) that happened at Newsweek you know, it took some time for me to start thinking about how some of these issues really were systemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that for my generation, that's what it means to be working while female. It, it means coming to the realization that these issues still do exist. However, they may not be as overt as they were mm-hmm. for our mother's generation. You know, there's no policy that says women are not allowed to write for Newsweek as there once was. Mm-hmm. But perhaps Every time you try to pitch a story in a meeting, you're interrupted by a man or your ideas are more frequently attributed to somebody else rather than yourself. There's all of these subtle things that are statistically true and happen on a daily basis, of course, but are also easy to to brush off or perhaps attribute to the individual not being good enough. And that's what you were doing. You were making the self-attribution of of a kind of career failure when, in fact, at least some of what you were experiencing, as you're saying, was a result of this pernicious, uh, if uh, conscious or unconscious, um, stigma, uh, if if I have it right, and prejudice uh, because of the fact of your being a woman. Right. And I think you mentioned the word unconscious. I think that's really important. A lot of this stuff is not conscious. You know, mm-hmm. women exhibit bias, too. 
And so I'm playful in the tone of the book, of course. The, there's a PSA for men that you mentioned, how to have a dick without being one. And I call it a penile service announcement. And, you know, there's all these playful things in the book. And I call out different male behaviors like manterruption or bro-propriation, which right. is a guy appropriating an idea. But so you were bro-propriated in the example you gave earlier. And, and I just yeah. manterrupted you. So why don't you just describe <laughs> what manterruption is? So manterruption is a woman being interrupted while she's speaking by a man. And women are interrupted at twice the rate that men are. So this statistically happens. And they are interrupted by both men and women. So it's not just a male problem, but, mm. you know, easy to kind of add the man to the beginning of the word and suddenly everyone knows what you mean. But the point about unconscious bias a lot of the men who are doing the interrupting actually really do believe in equality and they call themselves feminists and oftentimes they're really nice guys and are friends and sometimes it just requires a nudge in some of these cases mm -hmm. for them to realize that there is something ingrained in them that is causing them to speak more loudly or over you. And so I think that it's important to acknowledge that, yes, sexism, overt sexism certainly does still exist. But a lot of this is really unconscious behavior that can be tweaked pretty easily. Changed. Yes. So is this what you mean by femulating someone? By, say that again? Femulating. <clears throat> That's a term yes. I, I think you use. Uh, F-E-M-U-L-A-T-E. -E. Uh, can you yes. explain to our listeners what that is? Yes. So femulation is in a, in a section of the book called WWJD, What Would Josh Do? Josh. And it's based, <laughs> Josh is a fake name, but it's based on the story of a man that I shared an office with for a number of years who we'll call Josh. And I would often observe his behavior and think to myself, how does he manage to stay, stay so confident even when he doesn't know what he's doing? <laughs> and it got to the point where my female colleagues and I would talk about this person and we would think to ourselves when we were in a bind or a tough situation or going in for a negotiation, WWJD, what would Josh do? And we would actually repeat that line and ask each other that. And so when I say femulate him, what I mean is thinking about what would a man do in this scenario and trying to emulate it in a sense that you're not just trying to behave like a man, but you're using some of what you see men exhibit in terms of the ability to stay confident and take risks and trying to do that for yourself. It's a brilliant term. So can you give us an example of some of your favorite femulation uh, formulations? Sure. Um, so at some point along the way, I started hearing this line that was really popular in business circles, fake it till you make it. And, you know, that gets thrown around a lot. And you can't just fake anything, but men have this ability to act like they know what they're talking about. And it's actually proven by research. And I'm sure I don't need to be telling you this because you're the person who's doing some of this research while I'm just perusing it. But confidence can actually lead people to believe that you are more competent. So if you can fake it and fake confidence, then it's actually more likely that you're going to get ahead in an environment where people think that you are in fact competent, which you may be or you may not be. But I see mm -hmm. men do this much more frequently than women. So faking it till you make it is one. Um, how do you do that, though? I mean, can you uh, let, let me just follow up on that? Can you can you give us an example when you or one of your Fight Club colleagues uh, 
actually did that successfully? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of tricks that I've learned through reading research, and a lot of them, when I was writing them, and as I do them, I almost feel so cheesy that I can hardly do it. But things like talking to yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that you are actually as good as you think you are, um, writing affirmations, <laughs> writing these things down over and over again, I am awesome, I am good enough. Uh, you know, Olympic athletes do that, and it works for them. Of course they do. Um, there's something called the power pose. Yes. You can put your hands on your hips and spread mm-hmm. your legs wide. This is from Amy Cuddy, the Harvard professor. We've, we've talked and about it on this show. I occasionally sure. do it before we actually go on air because my producer, exactly. Patty Hall, insists that I do. She's doing it now. Right. So you can power pose for 90 seconds before you go into a big meeting and your testosterone levels will rise and your confidence will go up and you can actually fake that confidence. So some of those are the tricks that I've actually used before I go into a negotiation, before I do an interview like this. I take a few minutes beforehand and I try to do these things. Mm-hmm. And I have seen that they do actually help. Oh, they even work. if I feel completely cheesy while doing it. It does feel cheesy. Um, yeah. But it works, so why not? And it, Exactly. And, right? Uh, Jessica, tell us more about some of the uh, important tips that you've picked up through research uh, and uh, me-search, as one of my colleagues calls it, when you do research on the stuff that's important to you based on your own experience, which you have done. Oh, me-search. I like that. Yes. <laughs> um, Katie Milkman's term. But go ahead. Very nice. So, you know, a lot of things. I think that having somebody else to have your back, whether it's forming your own fight club or creating a posse of women or having what I call a boast bitch... I hope that I'm allowed to say that on the air. Yeah. No, this is serious, XM. You can, you can <laughs> right. talk about boast bitches. So who's your boast right. bitch? So I, for many years, had a boast bitch when I was at Newsweek, and she also happened to be my best friend there. Her name was Jessie. And we had this pact between us where when somebody did something awesome, the other one would promote it on their behalf. They would send an email to mm-hmm. our bosses. They would talk about how great it was. They would make sure that the people who needed to know that we had done something awesome knew it. And the reason was that if a woman brags on her own behalf, she comes off as cocky and we like Mm -hmm. her less. But if somebody else brags on your behalf, you actually both look good. You get the credit for doing the great thing and the other person comes off as selfless. So having a boast bitch is a trick that I like a lot. Um, Easy too. Easy. Very easy. And I've also used that. It's not exactly a boast bitch, but more of a wingman. So we shouldn't have to have a white man sitting in a meeting nodding his head in order for ideas, our ideas to be taken seriously, obviously. However, I have found that that is very effective in some scenarios. So I had a friend. He was a male feminist. He was wonderful. And he would come into meetings where I would be pitching ideas. This is, again, back in my Newsweek days. Mm -hmm. And we would have a conversation beforehand where I would say, okay, you need to nod and look interested while this is happening. Look interested. And he would essentially affirm what I was saying Mm -hmm. through his body language and through his speech, and more people would pay attention to me. So that was something really easy that he was able to do. Another thing that he could do was if I got interrupted in a meeting, he could interrupt the interrupter. You know, rather than me being the naggy, whiny one saying, 
You just interrupted me. Excuse me. I'm not done speaking. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He can say, wait, hold on. Can you let Jeff finish? Mm -hmm. And suddenly he's doing a good deed and I get to say my point. Mm -hmm. So you have to enlist that, uh, that ally consciously. It sounds like you did. Yes. I think that allies are incredibly important, let's and talk, they can be men and women. Let's talk more about that. Uh, the other things that, that men can do. Tell me about what a lactator is. <laughs> so the lactahater is my funny term because of lactation. Uh, for a person in your office that assumes that because you're pregnant or because you're breastfeeding or if you're planning on getting pregnant, then you're not committed to the job. You know, mm-hmm. it's the person who, when a woman takes time out of the office and comes in two minutes late for a meeting, they say loudly, oh, were you picking up the kids from school, when perhaps it had nothing to do with your children. Mm-hmm. And all of the research shows that people actually believe this. They believe that women can't be as committed to their job as the whole work-life balance question. So that's a term that I use for anyone, male or female, who thinks that a woman can't do her job, when in reality, what the research has shown is that women who are mothers are actually much more efficient and effective. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that that is because they do not have time for crap. Mothers know mm-hmm. how to get shit done. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, support for that idea that uh, being uh, the, the person responsible for child rearing, which today is still mostly women, although, Jessica, you'll admit, I, I am sure that that is changing and that more and more men, certainly of your generation, are taking up the cudgels in, in the war on uh, you know, sexism at home uh, and becoming more the, the, lead, uh, you know, the lead parent. Um, still, it, there's, there's a stigma against uh, those who take responsibility for child rearing. And if you're the one who's doing that, you are more efficient with your time. Right. What, right. what are some of the other things that, uh, that men can do uh, to support um, the, the spread of uh, the feminist fight club? And, that go- and, I, and I'd like you to speak separately to the men your age and then the men my age. I'm 30 years older than you. So, you know, there's some really simple things. You can, if you're in a power position, if you're a boss, you can make sure that every meeting you schedule has an equal number of men and women, or at least roughly wow. equal. Okay. Because what the research shows is that when meetings are equal, women feel more comfortable speaking up and sharing their ideas. They're probably less likely to be interrupted that way as well. If you're in a hiring role, every time you inter- interview a male candidate for a job, you can promise that you will also interview a female candidate just to make it equal. You know, there are things like instituting policies in your workplaces and also taking advantage of policies. So there are a number of places that have paternity and maternity leave policies, parental leave policies that are given equally to men and women. And I think that that's a great thing because we need to normalize this idea that men and women are caretakers. But if the men do not take that leave, Mm -hmm. it's not going to set up a precedent. So something as simple as taking the leave that's offered you, if it's there. Yes. I think there's a ton of things that, you know, men can help out at home. They can do their half of the the household chores and the dishes because what the research shows is that men still do less of that even when their wives or partners are breadwinners. So I think that there's things along those lines and there's just being cognizant of some of the behaviors that we all possess, men and women. Some of these biases that cause us to assume that a woman speaking up is pushy or bossy or that if she asks 
twice she's a nag. You know, being cognizant that we all have biases and we're all a little bit sexist and trying to correct for that behavior. It's really a tough thing, though, to uh, to grasp your sense of privilege as a man. It's almost impossible because it's you know it's like the fish in the water. You, right, you, completely. You, you so sometimes you need someone else to point it out. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the reason why I've tried to use humor throughout this book because you know we're not trying to lecture or nag. We're trying to create a more equal world. And if you can call a man out for interrupting you in a playful manner that uses a funny word mm-hmm. so that he gets it and notices it next time so that he can stop himself, then I think that's a real success. I, I agree. It, you know, we, we just have a few minutes left here, Jessica, and I, I'd like to stay on this uh this theme of uh, your your use of humor is brilliant because I'm laughing as I'm reading this and yet I'm you know, I'm also learning uh, and so that kind of reduces my you know natural defensiveness that as a man I might I might have when I'm you know being told I have to change right so what else do you do or have you tried to do in the way that you've put this book forward and the language that you use that helps men to see what's in it for them to take seriously the advice and counsel that you provide? Well, I'm a big believer in data and that the biggest defense and offense in some ways that we who support gender equality have is making a case for these issues through data. So, you know, men can care about this book because they're good guys, because they're enlightened individuals, because they're feminists, or they could care because the bottom line is affected. Companies that have gender equality are more successful. Gender equality would raise the gross domestic product. Teams that have more women on them are more collaborative and more successful. So there's all of these really serious studies pointing to reasons why having an equal number of women and men on teams is beneficial. So Mm -hmm. I try to use data throughout. I also, of course, try to use humor. You know, I've used a lot of linguistic terms throughout the book, manterrupter, bro-appropriator, imitator. I've tried to create these sort of silly names, menstruator. Wait, <laughs> what's, a him- Trump. <laughs> what's, a, what's a imitator? Uh, a imitator is the guy who imitates what you say, essentially repeats it, and then everybody thinks that he came up with the idea. How that, how's that um, different than a bro-appropriator? A imitator just repeats it, and other people attribute the idea to him, whereas a appropriator is actively stealing He just steals your stuff. Okay, got it. And a menstruator is that guy who, anytime a woman raises her voice, and this is literally Donald Trump, asks, is it that time of the month? Is she on her period? And attributes Mm -hmm. female emotion to hormones, essentially. And, you know, these are silly terms, and obviously not every man is a manstruptor and not every interruption is happening from a man at all. But I think that these are linguistic hacks in a way. They mm-hmm. give us a really simple way of talking about a complex topic and they make it so when it happens, you can immediately recognize it. And so I hope that that's what these terms do rather than mm-hmm. you know pissing off a bunch of men about being called appropriators. So, and I think that men can laugh about it too. So, what about the other side of the equation? You know, the uh, I'm not sure. Reminded me that the term that you use for women who are antagonistic to the you know to the to the rights and progress of other women. Right. They used to be I called a, mean girls. Maybe there's maybe right. I mean, what's what's a better yeah, term? I have a bunch of terms for this. You know, the, this is the quintessential mean girl 
I call it the womenemy. Um, womenemy. The friendly firer. <laughs> or this is a woman who engages in sororicide, the ultimate feminist fight club sin, which is turning against your fellow women in combat. So, you know, my feeling there is it actually has taken me a long time to learn this lesson, which is that once you treat other women as your allies, not your enemies, we all become so much more powerful and stronger. The reason why women compete against each other is not because we are born with this competition. It is because throughout time, there have not been an equal number of positions for women at the top. And so if there were two women competing for a role, they felt they needed to elbow each other Mm -hmm. to get that job. If things were equal, then competition would still exist, but we wouldn't view the women as the competition. We would view the men and women equally as the competition. So in my real life fight club, we have a silly term called veg affirmative action, which essentially means treat all other women as your allies. You must do something to support women every day. And so I've struggled with that sometimes because it's very easy to instinctually think that another woman is a competition. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I have to catch myself and check myself to say, okay, why are you actually being competitive with this other person? So, and, and we all have to do that. I mean, this is a consciousness raising activity in, in the trenches, in our, you know, in our kitchens, our bedrooms, our boardrooms all the time. You got to be thinking about the impact of the words you're using and when you use them. Can you just say, we just have a, a little bit of time here left, a, 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 another word or two about uh, not so much the organizational or societal benefits of an equal world where men and women are competing at the same level and sexism is no more, but at a personal level for Josh uh, and, and, and others you know, like him, where is the, uh, where is the, the motivation for, for men to take this seriously aside from having a clear conscience? Well, to be good guys, for one, you know, every man has likely a mother or a sister or a daughter or a girlfriend. And I think that, you know, you notice among men that as soon as there is a woman in their life, they become more interested in these issues. Cheryl Sandberg talks about this a lot, that a lot of the men who show up to her events, she'll say to them instinctually, oh, how, how old is your daughter? And she won't ask if they have a daughter, but they always respond. Mm-hmm. And they always give the age because t- typically they do have a daughter. You know, this is going to make a more equal world. A more equal world is better for everyone. And I think that men and women working in tandem in the workplace actually produces better products. And so I think that it's on two levels. You know, it's the you want to be a good person. You want to be a progressive human these days. But also think about the bottom line. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. I've been speaking with uh, the award-winning journalist Jessica Bennett, who is the author of the wonderful new book, Feminist Fight Club. Check out her website, which is www.feministfightclub.com. That's one word, feministfightclub.com. And you should also follow her on Twitter, as I do. That's Jess7, J-E-S-S-7, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E, T.T. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica Bennett. So here is my challenge to you, my invitation. Jessica uses these uh, uh, 
uh, upending kind of funny terms to describe sexist behavior at work, words like appropriated or manterruption. And my invitation to you is to look for an opportunity to use terms that she describes like those to create a meaningful conversation about sexism that you have observed or perhaps participated in um, as, as either the offender or the victim so that you can open up a real conversation about such sexist actions and attitudes that would lead to better mutual understanding. This is a tough one. Not easy to do, but this is a big problem for us in our world at work, and it affects who we are at work and who we become and can become at work and in the other parts of our lives. So I hope that you'll look for an opportunity to create a better conversation about sexism and to use some of Jessica's language to help you to do that. If you're able to do this, and even if you're not but you've tried, I would love to hear from you as to what it is that you, uh, what you learn, what you discover from the attempt. You can reach me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And if you have an idea about someone you'd like to hear me talk with on this podcast about anything related to work and the rest of life, get in touch. I'd love to hear your ideas. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.